Hey, it's Mark. You've seen the ads, maybe even created some of them. Commercials with the tired themes of care and friendly doctors and nurses with smiling faces. However, the reality that most older adults who manage chronic illness now face couldn't be any further from these themes. So says primary care provider Village MD. An ad the company is currently running called Factory depicts clinicians literally getting ripped away from important interactions with patients because of the schedule that they have to follow. It's part of a new campaign dubbed New Way to Well that implies Village MD patients enjoy 24-7 access to their provider and care team. However, it comes amid a national clinician shortage and widespread physician burnout, begging the question, is Village MD just trying to get on patients' good side, or can it really save them from that corporate version of the American healthcare system that many of us have come to resent? This week on the podcast, my colleague Jack O'Brien explores the state of healthcare through the lens of two provider marketing campaigns. The aforementioned Village MD ad is described by its chief marketing officer, Ellen Donahue Dalton, and the second effort by the American College of Surgeons is dubbed the power of quality, and as its name implies, that campaign is designed to highlight the physician group's newer quality certification program for surgical centers and facilities, which ACS says patients prefer over the older U.S. News and World Report certification when deciding where to go for medical procedures. Brian Edwards, ACS Chief of External Communications, joins Jack to tell us about the effort. And Lesh is here with a health policy update. Hey, Mark. Today, I'll discuss a landmark marijuana financing bill that advanced in the Senate this month, which would give the marijuana industry the ability to secure funding from banks as opposed to relying only on cash business. And Jack, what's trending in healthcare this week? This week, we're talking about Mary Lou Retton's recovery from a rare type of pneumonia, TikTok's bone smashing trend, and Netflix's big vape docuseries about Juul. I'm Mark Iskowitz, Editor-at-Large, and welcome to the MMM Podcast, medical marketing media's show about healthcare marketing writ large. Hello and welcome to the MMM Podcast. My name is Jack O'Brien. I'm the digital editor at MMM. I'm pleased to be joined today by Ellen Donahue Dalton, the Chief Marketing Officer at Village MD. Ellen, how are you doing today? I'm well, Jack. How are you? I'm doing great, and I'm so happy that you're on the show. I know a couple of weeks ago you spoke with my colleague, John Newton, about the New Way to Well campaign. I really wanted to focus our conversation today on kind of exploring the campaign, what went into it, best practices for the marketers in our audience. And if you can just start there, you know, how did this all come to be? I know that it certainly made some ripple effects across the industry as the ads have rolled out. Jack, it was really important for us to understand that many Americans who are over 63 years of age today have views of the healthcare industry and their experience that include lack of accessibility, lack of availability, lack of personalized care, and lack of navigation ability across complex silos. And as a primary care provider, uh, not exclusively serving seniors, but helping many seniors manage chronic conditions, we realized that we needed to have a new way for people to feel and to be as well as they could. We had to move away from the old, tired themes of care and you know, friendly doctors and friendly nurses, uh, faces smiling, when the reality that most older adults face now could not be any further from those themes. And we had to break through. So the new way to well was our way to create a unique, compelling, and distinctive offer. And could you talk about those thematic elements? Because I talk to marketers and healthcare leaders so often, they talk about what you have described as that kind of traditional, you know, trope that we see in, you know, for our audience, pharma and biotech uh, brands, but also in healthcare brands too, where it's big sunshines and rainbow and, oh, your doctor's taking care of you and the nurse has a smile. And this just goes the complete other direction. I think that's what makes it so gripping. So the new way to well features the dilemma that our doctors, nurses, and APPs and other specialty providers like pharmacists feel every day. And that is they are ripped away from important interactions with patients uh, because of the schedule that they have to follow. They don't have the information that they need. They aren't able to coordinate care in the way that they need. And we knew that to create this new 
perspective on the part of our important patients that we needed to be able to demonstrate the fact that our providers were in their court as well. And that really the new way to well was based upon a relationship between a provider, a care team, and the patient in which there was availability, there was accessibility 24 by 7, virtually in the clinic or practice, at home if you need it there, right? There was that availability. There was care coordination, true care coordination for people who manage complex conditions, uh, of availability of other high-quality referral specialists. The fact that with the new way to well, your provider and you, the patient, can sit down with a pharmacist and work through your medications, understand where some contraindications might be, understand where maybe some are creating symptoms, so you've stopped taking them, or perhaps they're no longer affordable, so you've stopped taking them, right? You can have real conversations with uh, a dedicated, informed care team in a way that, again, keeps you on the best path to be well. And can you talk about that as a differentiator, again, kind of going to the theme of the campaign? I'm sure there are plenty of other provider organizations that you compete with that probably take a more, I don't want to say lighthearted approach, but they certainly are going to go with the happy, smiling thing, whereas, uh, whereas you are, again, underscoring the kind of flaws and shortcomings that our healthcare system has and basically saying that our organization is looking to fill those in. We understand you as a patient. We're trying to meet you where you are. I imagine that's very powerful when you go out marketing to reach patients who say, finally, someone understands what we're going through. One of the things that we found, Jack, in our research was that the primary care availability in this country was so strained and so many older adults managing one or multiple conditions simply no longer saw their primary care provider as really even relevant. They might see their oncologist or their cardiologist or their pulmonologist as the quarterback, if you will, of their care. But in fact, we know that specialists are not motivated or or organized to be able to provide true care coordination. They are specialists. It's really only your primary care provider who can and who should be responsible for that coordinating role. And what we found was that our primary care providers wanted to play that role, right? So if you open up the doors of availability and accessibility, and if you bring in a patient who is in front of of the, the care team at the appropriate regularity, then honestly, the next step is care coordination. And care coordination can't stop with one specialist. It can't stop with one hospital admit. It's kind of a 24 by 7, 365 day a year uh, thing for many of our patients. And when we understood that, that what patients wanted and what we were poised to be able to deliver in a new type of primary care we were able to bring all the forces together in the new way to well to make it that differentiated. Because other health systems may say that, like they agree with the concepts of availability and and care coordination. Village Medical has this opportunity to be uniquely differentiated to do that for its patients. I appreciate you highlighting the importance of primary care. In a past life, I used to write about hospitals and health systems. I remember even before COVID-19, there was a big push to say primary care really has to be the backbone of where we're going to see a revised and revitalized healthcare system in this country. And I'm, I think that that's probably the case with this ad campaign is going to patients and saying like, hey, it's not just the cardiologist that you see or the pulmonologist or anybody else. It really is the people that are that have a fundamental wholesale understanding of your health. And I'm wondering what the response has been thus far, whether from patients or HCPs in terms of this campaign's rollout. Our providers love it. They love the fact that they are able to practice medicine in the way that they want to and and then the way that they believed that they were educated and and trained for. Um, And what I would say is that those patients who are experiencing the new way to well 
and their personalized care plan called the Stay Well Care Plan, which is our clinical care model personalized for each individual patient. Those patients love it as well because those patients now understand the role of the provider. They understand the role of the care team. They understand the fact that they have 24-7 access and availability to someone on that care team who has their information, who knows their medical condition, understands their medications, knows that maybe they were just, just, you know, they're in the hospital now or they were recently admitted, et cetera. And when patients feel that wraparound sense of trust and care and sort of, um, you know, love, right, for, for them and their situation, they return the feeling to us in spades. Yeah, it's always good to be on the good side of patients, especially as more and more of them value the elements of consumerism where they can move from organization to organization. There is that kind of battle for brand loyalty, if you will. And to that end, I wanted to you know, talk to you about the fact that obviously you come from a provider organization on the marketing side. A lot of our audience are primarily in the pharma and biotech space, but obviously there are a lot of best practices that can be shared from your experience in healthcare marketing. What are some of the things that stand out most to you in terms of being able to reach patients and understand what they're looking for and then being able to put together a campaign or educational materials around that? Well, I I guess the first thing that I would say is that healthcare is somewhat unique in that the bond of trust between the provider and therefore the institution around that provider and the patient is really where you need to start. So you can't really start with a campaign or a brochure or a tagline. Um, You have to start with an understanding that that's where the magic happens. And for some patients, it has to happen often right? It, it has to be regular and it has to, it, it has to surpass the traditional constructs of appointments, physical interaction, right? It, it has to encompass entire journeys um, and relationships between patients and providers and the institutions and organizations that serve them. So, you know, every single macro data point in this industry points to trust, right? If, if patients can't trust you to be there, if they can't trust you to answer the phone, if they can't trust that you can handle an acute and a non-acute situation, if they can't trust that you're not going to send them information that is irrelevant to them, like sending blood pressure information to a 23-year-old, which by the way happens, um, if, if they can't trust that you actually know them and are accessible to them and available to them and understand them, then honestly, all the, all the marketing campaigns and everything uh, in, in the world is not going to, to help. The core understanding of consumer expectations, and they vary by consumer groups, et cetera, the core understanding of those perspectives and then the, the systemic, systematic, comprehensive work to build patient experiences that satisfy and delight is really what healthcare marketing has become all about. And the new way to well as a campaign is just the way to describe this new patient experience that we're committed to. I appreciate you so succinctly outlining what I think we've seen a lot of research reports and surveys basically underscoring what you talk about when it comes to trust and being able to understand what a consumer or a patient's expectations are when they're interacting with the healthcare system. And to that end, I wanted to give you the final word in this conversation, you know, as we're finally coming out of this emergency phase of the COVID-19 pandemic. And obviously we're going into this sort of, you know, it's going to be coming up every uh, single year in seasonal patterns, things of that nature. As we go into the kind of endemic phase of the pandemic, where does healthcare marketing go? What are the lessons that have been learned from this time and how can they be applied to make more effective campaigns or add outreach? You know, I, I think one of the lessons that have been learned by individuals is that the state of their health and their wellness matters every day, whether a pandemic is coming, whether the flu season is particularly aggressive, whether you have, you know, seasonal allergies that then trigger a whole number of other conditions. 
that the stronger you are, the healthier you are, the more you are committed to the management of your own health and that you are empowered to be able to demand the kind of care that you need, that that is the person and that group of people is growing broader and broader and older, right? Folks are living into their 90s, their 100s, right? That group of people is growing every single day. And I think when populations undergo something as life-changing as a pandemic, you come out of it and you realize, look, every day I can take the right steps to being healthier and to being stronger in face of whatever whatever is, is ahead um, of me. And having good, accessible, high-quality care that coordinates the complexity when I need help coordinating is part of my right as a consumer and as a citizen. Those are very powerful words, Ellen, and I really appreciate you being able to underscore, obviously, what has been so successful in this campaign, but also the universal themes that we've seen across the healthcare landscape and what that's going to mean in terms of outreach to patients and consumers on that front. So I certainly wish you and Village MD the best going forward. Hopefully, if there's another campaign down the line that we're able to analyze and dissect for our audience, we'd love to have you back on the show. That would be great, Jack. I really appreciate having the opportunity today to share this with you. I am pleased to be joined today by Brian Edwards, who is the Chief of External Communications for the American College of Surgeons. Brian, how are you doing today? Doing great, Jack. It's a pleasure to be with you today. I appreciate you making the time to speak with me. I know our audience is usually used to us talking with agency heads or people who work for pharma or biotech companies. Obviously, ACS has a different mission in mind, but still is part of the larger healthcare ecosystem. To start off, can you give us a little lay of the land with what ACS does, what your mission is, and then we can go into some more specifics around your Power of Quality campaign? Absolutely. The American College of Surgeons is the largest professional organizations of surgeons in the world with over 87,000 members. We've been around since 1913, and one of our founders, Franklin Martin, really started it to help improve the quality of surgery, improve the education of, surgery, of surgeons so that they could get better at what they do in serving their patients. And so quality and improving healthcare quality has been our mission and a fundamental part of what we do since our founding. We started out with our cancer programs and our trauma programs in the 1920s. They both celebrated their 100th year anniversary last year. And people know about this work because, for example, uh, everyone uses cancer staging language when they talk about, you know, what stage of cancer did you have? That is from work from the American College of Surgeons. When you speak about a, ver a level one verified trauma center, a level one trauma center, that is work done by the American College of Surgeons, writing the trauma standards that are really govern and guide the uh, trauma services and hospitals across the country. So, and then a variety of different quality programs that, that we are involved in, and which has led us to our Power of Quality campaign. So, the American College of Surgeons has really impacted healthcare uh, significantly, including our quality work, which led to the development of the, of the Joint Commission, which accredits hospitals. So, so much of what we've done has been rooted in quality and in improving the care of the surgical patient. I, I appreciate you detailing kind of the history of the organization and also its tie-in with quality. In terms of going through the issues surrounding quality and striving to have a better standardization and understanding of quality, and to that end, can you walk me through the Power of Quality campaign and maybe what are some of its um, goals down the line? Sure, absolutely. I mean, one of the things we know that hospitals work every day to try and provide high-quality care for patients, and it's tough. Hospitals are stretched in ways that they have not been stretched in years. COVID showed us that all the difficulties and challenges that hospitals have in providing quality and care. And so uh, since we've done, we've created uh, more than a dozen quality programs, we wanted to be able to help hospitals promote their commitment to quality. And so the Power of Quality campaign is about helping hospitals get credit for uh, the quality work that they've done, to get credit for the work that they're, they are doing to improve surgical quality in their, in their facilities, and to help promote that with patients. One of the things we know is that patients are looking for quality. They want to go to a hospital that they know that they can get good surgical care. And so if they have to have their mother or father or sister or brother or, or grandmother or grandfather have surgery, we want them to be able to use the Surgical Quality Partner Diamond, 
which is part of our Power of Quality campaign, to identify a location that they know has been verified or accredited by the American College of Surgeons. And that in going to that facility that's been verified, and if they see that surgical quality partner diamond, they know that they're going to get high quality care. I want to go into some more specific uh, questions surrounding the campaign itself and maybe how you're measuring its success. But going to the issue of quality for a second, I'm curious on your end, obviously, since you have so much experience and you're interacting with these industry stakeholders so frequently, what are some of the more misunderstood aspects of quality when it comes into the conversation? Because I think a lot of people in their mind are probably like, you know, we, we check these boxes, we get these good surveys or reviews. We're pretty set on quality, but I know it's a lot deeper than that, too. Absolutely. That's a great question, Jack. One of the things about quality that is, is so challenging is that people think that they know what it looks like and they see, but it's like, how are they measuring it? How are they assessing it? And so what our quality programs do is they come in first with setting very high standards. These are the standards that you need to meet to ensure that you're doing your absolute best to deliver a quality program. Then you need to be able to use data to evaluate that. Are we in fact hitting these standards? And what are the processes that we have in place to, to create the conditions to meet these standards and to generate the data to, to do that? And then once we do that, then we verify it. Did we in fact meet our mark? So for example, let's just talk about a couple of quality programs. One of our quality programs is our geriatric surgery verification program, one of our newer programs, and it's designed around care for the older adult. And what we know about older adults is, is that there are oftentimes there are quality of life issues and, uh, and, and patients and older adults don't necessarily get the communications that they need to make decisions about uh, the care that they have. So in our standards, we, decide, we define how those conversations should go. They, you know, for example, we talk about and shared decision-making with patients and their caregivers and their families to decide, is it right? Maybe they don't even have need to have surgery, but if it's right to have surgery, what are the kinds of quality of life issues that they need to look at? For example, are they looking at prolonging life? Are they looking at preserving a function or independence? Can I go to my grandson's wedding? You know, can I resume um, pickleball? All these kinds of conversations. And so many times surgical questions were around is, you know, just a fix it mentality. Get in there and fix it and not think about the actual quality of life. Well, what these standards do is they foster those conversations and require those conversations. So you're having that conversation with the caregiver and the patients to make the best decision. You know, in addition, it's pre-screening. What is the risk that patient may have for delirium? Delirium affects, in, in, in a previous study in around 2008, uh, there was a statistic that showed that 2.6 million patients had delirium after surgery, costing health systems $164 million a year. And, and so the question is around what are you doing to kind of prevent delirium? If you can prevent delirium, then you can reduce the hospital stay. So you're improving the quality of life for that patient. You're improving the hospital performance by not having as having patients stay there longer than they need to be. And you're, and you're creating conditions for optimal patient care. So these are some of the real world implications of like the geriatric program that will be helpful for hospitals to be able to use. And so from our perspective, what we want you to do, if you need to have surgery for your grandparent or your mother or an aunt or uncle, we want you to go to a facility that has a surgical, the geriatric surgical verification diamond to show that you have the surgical, surgical quality that you know is that that location has been verified by the American College of Surgeons and that you can get high quality care there for your relative. And so going back to the campaign, based on everything that you just said there, what has the launch of the campaign been like in terms of reception by your target audience? And I know it's a three-year initiative. A lot of our marketers that are in our audience probably are used to maybe shorter term um, initiatives. Why three years for this one? And how are you measuring any sort of success as it relates to this campaign? Yeah, one of the things that we did is we listened to our some of our hospital partners, right? We want them to be able to get maximum value out of their verification or accreditation. So what we designed is a whole suite of marketing materials that hospitals can use right off the shelf to promote their status as, as an American College of Surgeon Surgical Quality Partner. That's everything from social media cards to digital banners to physical banners to surgical quality plaques uh, to 
advertisements and magazines, web banners, all the content. And we're providing all that content to hospitals for free. So all they have to do is be able to download that and be able and add their logo to it and then they can use it. And we thought that it was that was would be helpful because we know hospital marketing departments are stretched. They are under they have so many demands on them. So we wanted to make it easy for them. And so we're not requiring any licensing fee for using these materials because we want to help them get the most out of their investment in quality and to be able to promote that. And so one of the things that we learned was uh, patients want this information. But we did a survey to to talk to patients who were either going to have surgery that year or a loved one was going to have surgery that year. And we asked them what would help them make a decision about where they wanted to go to have surgery. Would it be American College of Surgeons Surgical Quality Partner Mark or maybe the U.S. News and World Report marketing materials? And 54, 55% of patients wanted to go to an American College of Surgeons Verified Center versus 34% for U.S. News. Now, we know hospitals use U.S. News and World Report rankings. Uh, they use that. That's, it's, it's a common and has been used for years. It's a common thing that people can use to think of, oh, yeah, I see a U.S. News banner. Okay, they're top 10 for this or top 100 for that or, you know, top breast center or top uh, colon cancer center. And those give the customer and the patient uh, some modicum of like, okay, they must be pretty good here at what they do. And so, but what we do is by using this diamond and and the fact that we're starting out with 55% of patients saying, I want to go there, they know that they've got the reputation of the American College of Surgeons behind them. They know that we've come in and reviewed and verified or accredited that center. And they know that they can get good quality care there. So we think that's going to be very helpful for hospitals to be able to use this uh, material to promote it. So we're just getting the materials out into the wild, so to speak, out into all the hospitals that are in our programs uh, and sharing it with new hospitals that uh, you know have not yet participating in our quality programs to help them learn about the 13 different accreditation verification programs that we have and how that they can get involved and, and do this. But we think it's going to be a great distinguisher for hospitals to be able to showcase the fact that they are committed to quality and finally get some real credit for all the things that they do every day to improve surgical quality. Yeah, you bring up a lot of interesting points there, obviously talking about how stretched thin a lot of hospital marketing departments are. And I want to pick up on one of the latter points that you made, which is talking about kind of going to maybe, I won't say the skeptical organizations, but obviously there are organizations that are very attached to their U.S. News and World Reports. I know that there have been some organizations this year that have distanced themselves or or abandoned that as a measure of their success. But when you are talking to some of those organizations that may really favor that or those that you say maybe have no idea about the work that the ACS has done on the front uh, related to quality. What are those conversations like? Because I know that anytime that I'm talking with medical marketers and they're rolling out a campaign that involves an education aspect, they usually say that's one of the toughest things they have to do is to go to somebody and say, here is the entire issue at hand. Here's why it's important. And here's what you need to do about it. Right. The U.S. News World Report rankings have been around forever. And in my past life, I've, I've worked in the education space as well. And so I've seen a lot of rankings both on the school side, on the medical school side, uh, and for hospitals. And we know that hospitals who get good rankings, you know, trumpet the the rankings and say, hey, we're we're number X, we're, we're great at this. And we know the hospitals that don't do so well or schools that don't do so well say, oh, th- these rankings are deeply flawed because of X, Y, or Z data point data analysis. Because it's hard to know exactly all the things that go into the mix and into the into the kitty, so to speak, to when U.S. News is doing their rankings. The good news about what we're doing is that we've got a very clear verification and accreditation process where we have teams of surgeons that come into a hospital uh, after they've applied and submitted all their materials. We go in and verify. We go in and ask questions. We go in and kick the tires. We go in to see, hey, is this really happening as the way in the way that you say it's happening? And if it is, and they meet those standards and they pass that accreditation or verification visit, they get the Surgical Quality Partner Diamond and they get that accreditation. And then we want them to be able to say to the community, hey, look, we have passed this incredibly rigorous test 
and we are ready to serve you in this way because we know we've met these standards. So it's something that will take time to get out there in the education space. And I think the fact that 55% of patients say they're, they're inclined to go with a facility, an institution that has our surgical quality partner, Diamond, is a, a great um, persuasive point with hospital marketing departments because they know they they have to distinguish themselves in the marketplace. There's so many things now competing for attention and they want to be able to say, hey, we are good at this and we can take care of your needs. And we want to give them the tools to be able to do that in the surgery space. Yeah, obviously, any sort of provider organizations are going to look at where the majority of patients have a preference and say, that's probably the lane that we want to go down going forward. Um, Brian, I've really enjoyed having you on the show here and being able to discuss everything related to ACS in this campaign. Obviously, you're a veteran when it comes to being in the healthcare marketing space. I want to know if there's anything else that you would pass along to our audience of medical marketers, even those who may not be working in the provider space as it relates to you know reaching and understanding patients, launching campaigns, things of that nature. Yeah, I think it all goes back to down to what's in it for me, right? Uh, that's what the, the patient, it's so much harder to reach patients nowadays. I'm an old reporter from my oldest days, and it was easy back in the day because there were a couple of newspapers and three TV stations. Now you've got, you're inundated with social media hitting you in every aspect of your life. You've got ads coming at you a million different ways on all your devices. And so you have to really be able to quickly cut through that and get into the what's in it for me. And that's why what we want to do to give to hospitals is we want to give them the easy toolkits, you know, with like, for example, with the geriatric program, so that when they hear that information about, hey, this is, I, I can use this. I can use this to say, this is why we're better for uh, older adult care, because we do these things to make sure that you're getting the right care. And so you have to cut through it quickly. And what we want to do is make it easy for hospital marketers to do that. That's why we're providing a wealth of, of, of free assets and, and materials to do that. And they can provide that and get that information and they can download it. And it's ready. It'll be ready to go and easy to get to. So uh, and folks can look on our site for more information about the quality campaign at facs.org slash quality. That's facts.org slash quality. They can email for information at sqp at facs.org. That's Surgical Quality Partner, sqp at facs.org. And we'll get information to them and be able to help them communicate all the good work that they're doing in the quality space to their patients. Awesome. Well, Brian, again, really appreciate you being on the show to outline this campaign, the work that your organization is doing around quality and allowing me to have a little stroll down memory lane as it relates to hospitals and marketing, too. I really appreciate it. Absolutely, Jack. We're always happy to share our information with you and and all the folks that listen to your podcast. And uh, we look forward to getting the word out there about the Surgical Quality Partner, Mark, and, uh, and getting that out there to all hospitals. Health Policy Update with Lesha Bouchak. A marijuana bill that some are calling landmark legislation advanced in the Senate last week, signaling a potential step forward in allowing the marijuana industry to secure access to banking services and expanding into a bigger market. This month, a group of bipartisan lawmakers introduced the Secure and Fair Enforcement Regulation Banking Act, which would give legal protection to banks and other financial institutions that are linked to marijuana services. The bill would allow the bill would allow legal cannabis businesses to have access to bank accounts and small business loans as opposed to operating entirely on cash business as they do now. Democratic Senator Jeff Merkley noted in a statement that the bill's passage in the Senate Banking Committee was quote a historic moment. Merkley said the bill was designed to end the so-called cannabis cash economy and argued it would help improve public safety. He added that, quote, forcing legal businesses to operate in all cash is dangerous for our communities. It's an open invitation to robberies, muggings, money laundering and organized crime. 39 states in the U.S. currently have legalized marijuana for recreational and or medical use. Though marijuana's federal status as a Schedule One substance has hampered the industry's ability to scale to a bigger market. Still, while the bill had bipartisan support in the Senate Banking Committee, it will face significant hurdles through its journey to pass the Republican-controlled House. I'm Lesha Bouchak, senior reporter at MMM. Trending. Trending. 
And this is the part of the broadcast when we welcome Jack O'Brien to tell us what's trending in healthcare. Hey, Jack. Hey, Mark. Before we start this episode, I want to send our collective best wishes to the family of Suzanne Summers. The actress passed away over the weekend at the age of 76 following a five-decade battle with breast cancer. And obviously, that's a loss for all of those who are fans of Three's Company, but also you know, a lengthy uh, career marred by a disease like breast cancer. So sending along our best to the Summers family. I want to start with a little bit of happier news, given that Olympic champion Mary Lou Retton is making remarkable progress fighting a rare form of pneumonia. The infection left the 55-year-old gymnastics icon fighting for her life, according to her daughter, who's been posting updates on social media. A few days ago on Instagram, she wrote, quote, our prayers have been felt and have been answered. Although she remains in the ICU, her path to recovery is steadily unfolding. Her fighting spirit is truly shining. Many in our audience may recall that Retton won the gold medal at the 1984 Summer Olympics in Los Angeles, earning the adoration of millions and the nickname America's Sweetheart. Of note, a fundraising page set up by the family has already exceeded $400,000 in donations. Obviously, uh, you know, a well-known part of American culture, certainly sporting culture in Retton, and it's very promising to at least see that she's recovering like this. Still scary that somebody, you know, with her physique and her background is suffering from this at the age of 55, which really is not that old in comparison to, I think a lot of the celebrity health conditions that we write and report about. Yeah, it is. It is heartwarming. Um, the, the news that she's doing better and yes, yeah, she's, she's so young to be stricken with such a serious uh, illness. Uh, but if it can happen to her, it's uh, you know, kind of a warning sign. Um, you know, not that, uh, you know, there was anything, necessarily preventable here i'm not sure how she actually got pneumonia was that did that come out in the story jack not that i've seen in any of the reporting i think that's going to be you know something that probably unfolds in the next few days is how she contracted it obviously it's not necessarily something that people go out of their way in terms of risk factors to get but one other thing that stuck out to me in the story it was the last thing that i included in there is the fundraising link i think it kind of speaks to what we've talked about in the show before this kind of GoFundMeification of healthcare, where even somebody like mary lou Redden, who has a gold medal still has to raise money to be able to you know afford icu care and something as dangerous and as deadly as this kind of eye-opening in that sort of way yeah, that, that was also pretty surprising, right? You know, it's, uh, does every, you know, person battling, you know, a serious illness need to uh, open up a GoFundMe page, um, you know, when they have, you know, ostensibly private, private health insurance. Um, but, uh, you know, as, as a kid growing up and not, I can't say that I can specifically recall, you know, vividly, you know, her gold medal in, in 84, uh, but certainly, you know, her, her representing the, the sport, she was the face of the sport. Um, she made, she made us proud, you know, of, of, you know, the Olympic team and, um, you know, she was, uh, I think a, uh, you know, a commentator for all those years. So it's, it's, it's good to see that uh, she's on the mend. Absolutely. And, uh, relevant to sort of bring that up now, even though, you know, we don't know what caused, um, her severe case of pneumonia, but as we are entering flu and cold season, we do know that flu can be a common cause of developing pneumonia. According to the American Lung Association, um, particularly among younger children, the elderly or others with um, certain chronic health conditions may be more likely to develop pneumonia um, if they do catch the flu. So just another reminder to, to stay uh, safe as we enter the flu and cold season. Absolutely. Great point. Lesha, you want to introduce this next one? Sure. So um, we decided to cover the TikTok bone smashing trend, which sounds uh, pretty terrifying. It all started with mewing, which is a trend on TikTok that involves people keeping their tongues at the roof of their mouths in order to make their jawlines sharper. Now it's moved on to bone smashing. The trend involves young men hitting their faces with a hammer or their fists or some type of object in order to chisel their facial structure. While many observers believe the trend shouldn't be taken seriously, others seem to genuinely believe that repeatedly hitting their faces to create small bone fractures can actually make them more aesthetically pleasing. This trend falls under this idea of, quote, looks maxing, which is an online term for people who want to make physical changes to their appearance, like nose jobs, jaw implants, or bone smashing, um, and all in this sort of goal to become more beautiful, more attractive, make their facial features more physically appealing. Um, and videos labeled with the bone smashing hashtag have racked up hundreds of millions of views. 
Um, so it's definitely a concerning trend. There have been a few medical experts on TikTok who have expressed concern about it, basically saying that you're not going, first of all, you're not going to have your bones heal in a more aesthetically pleasing way if you do create fractures in your bones. Um, you should not be doing this trend. But, you know, as, as many of these trends sort of do uh, make their rounds on the platform, we've discussed this before, but now a lot of the, the viral videos about bone smashing have kind of turned into trolling or kind of making fun of the trend. So we're now kind of in that in-between state where like everyone is kind of in on the joke while there still remains some people who I think are genuinely trying this in hopes of, quote, looks maxing. <laughs> looks maxing. I love it. Yet another TikTok beauty trend uh, here with, with serious health ramifications. And, uh, you know, the, as you point out, Leslie, these are, there's a rolling out quite often. Um, and, you know, one has to wonder, you know, why, why is this and, and will it ever stop? Um, you know, the Times had a really interesting article last week. Um, maybe a lot of some people saw it in the audience. Um, it was on mental health influencers, but it kind of deconstructs that whole dynamic, you know, where you have, it says the, the Surgeon General has described the mental health of young people in America as the defining public health crisis of our time. Uh, and for this vulnerable, hard to reach population, social media serves as their primary source of information. Where are they getting it? TikTok, Instagram, YouTube. And who are the gatekeepers? That's the creators. You know, some look like their audience. Others are professionals, psychologists, psychiatrists that just do this as a side gig. But there's very little oversight to no oversight. And as the Times pointed out now, a team of Harvard uh, researchers has selected a group of mental health influencers to try and inject accurate information into their posts. So I was thinking maybe mental health can be a proving ground uh, and a platform for that model for mitigating misinformation going viral on social for other therapeutic areas. And as you pointed out, Lesha, in the interview with Austin Lee Chang that, that's running on our site now that you, inter you, you interviewed in, in Vegas, there's certainly no shortage of areas where we need better info uh, in, in health. So, you know, um, those beauty and cosmetic trends that have to do with makeup, haircuts, clothing styles, those are innocuous enough, but others like this um, bone smashing trend can be downright dangerous. And, uh, you know, in, in my own admittedly conservative opinion, it's not worth the risk of permanent facial disfigurement because as you saw some, you know, attractive person with a lot of followers seemingly inducing mini fractures along their jawline. Um, but the Times article uh, gave me hope. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up that article, Mark, because um, I thought it was a very interesting experiment that Harvard researchers wanted to do with some of these influencers to see if they could get some of these people to uh, speak about some of the research that they've been doing and these evidence-based uh, things that the researchers want to get out there. Um, but I do think that that article is a sign that uh, the research and science community is no longer dismissing uh, health influencers on TikTok as sort of being quacks or like uh, just pure spouts of misinformation. They're actually saying, wow, we, we see the power that you have over your audiences and we want to tap into that. So they're starting to kind of see if they can leverage them or partner with them. So I think it's an interesting development. Absolutely. Jack, you uh, want to weigh in on this one? Yeah, I want I want to take our listeners behind the game here because as Lesha was detailing what bone smashing is and the various examples that she found on TikTok, our producer Fitz was visibly cringing and putting a palm over his face uh, for understandable reasons because I think we both share the same sentiment that Mark uh, put so eloquently that this is dumb and a bad idea. Yeah, I think we've have we lost society? Is that what's going on here? <laughs> that's what it that's just what it feels like. I don't know. It's just of all the ways to try and sculpt your face to, you know, fit whatever aesthetic you're going for. This seems like by far one of the more bizarre and uh, to Mark's point, permanently disfiguring. I, I, I truly, I, it doesn't even take that much common sense to go down the logic tree and say, oh, this is maybe not a good idea. But again, I think Lesha makes an important point where, yes, there are probably a handful of people that do genuinely and sincerely ascribe to this, but then there are plenty of other people that are just trolling and i saw some of the videos that she included in her article of people you know with the biggest hammer you've ever seen about to bring it to their face and they're obviously not meaning it seriously but it does point out just the ridiculousness of this i don't know other way to put it yeah and and jack you know to that point i was troubled by the same thing like who who is going to be falling for this who's who's that vulnerable person who's doesn't have you know the the wherewithal the common sense uh seichel as we call it in, in yiddish and you know the young people in this country as the times 
pointed out, um, are, are going through a mental health crisis. They're, they're vulnerable. They're, you know, they're the ones who are falling for this, unfortunately. Um, and so they're the audience we, we gotta be concerned about. Um, maybe in a few years, uh, they'll, they'll be grizzled veterans like myself, but, uh, until then, um, <laughs> you know, we got to, uh, got to look out for, for our young people. Speaking of which, that's a good transition, Mark, for the concern of young people. I know a number in our audience probably have wondered what's happened to Juul. You know, obviously millions of Americans are still vaping, but what has happened to the company that was so synonymous with this widely established alternative to smoking? Netflix has the answer to that. Last week, they released the four-part docuseries Big Vape, The Rise and Fall of Juul, which has quickly become one of the streaming giant's most-watched shows this month. And the docuseries really taps into some of the all-too-familiar tropes that go along with shows like this, Ambitious Leaders, undone by hubris and greed, but it really taps into the fact that a big part of Jules' undoing was their marketing practices. And Mark talks about protecting our youth. The, the docuseries really highlights how vaping came about. It was originally targeted for adults. And then right around 2015, when Jewel really started to make its big push into the mainstream, you have all these glossy, you know, fun, colorful ads that are running and they almost to a T and they showed in the docuseries mirror what you saw big tobacco companies marketing Newports, Marlboro's, you, you name your choice of cigarette years before. And, you know, that obviously has its own problematic impacts for adults, but obviously then it was appealing towards children in terms of flavored vape products, you know, cotton candy, all this sort of stuff. And it was really interesting to watch the series, I've, I finished it just yesterday so I could write it for the third M column that comes out today. It was really interesting to watch all of these issues at play, but really it came down to the marketing and the advertising, which is obviously such a core part of our audience. And, you know, Mark, I know that you've certainly been following the issue for a number of years. I wanted to bring you in and then Lesha as well. I wanted to hear your thoughts after Mark goes in terms of, you know, how the marketing aspect really plays into the whole vaping thing. Yeah. Well, I didn't catch the, um, the series yet, Jack. Um, but, uh, you know, you bring up a great point. And, you know, I remember, you know, in, in terms of, uh, vapes and e-cigs, you know, a couple of years ago, the FDA tried to this in a, in a related, you know, move, you know, regulatory move, they tried to, you know, make efforts to ban menthol cigarettes. Um, and they got a lot of pushback, you know, from, um, uh, African-American communities, um, you know, where, you know, the, the bulk of these, uh, are sold. Um, and so, uh, you know, even the FDA has been, uh, you know, had, had trouble, you know, regulating this area and, you know, e-cigarettes and, uh, and vapes are no uh, exception. You know, they're still, you know, they can't keep up possibly with the flood of these products, you know, illegally coming in from China now. And although they've done their best to, uh, undermine Juul's uh, marketing ability, you know, like you said, with some of the flavored vapes uh, and appealing to kids and, and following the, the big tobacco playbook uh, that got, you know, a lot of America hooked on tobacco for so many years. Um, so, you know, it's, uh, it's, it sounds like an interesting uh, watch. Um, and uh, it's in that same vein, yeah, of, of the hubris of, you know, big, big corporate executives um, trying to, you know, sell America on something of, uh, you know, dubious health uh, benefits. Um, in this case, it's, it's better than, from what I've heard, it's better than smoking, but it's still, nicotine is still highly addictive and it does have um, health drawbacks. Yeah, I believe that was uh, part of their, Jack, correct me if I'm wrong, but part of Juul and other e-cigarette makers uh, marketing is basically saying, well, these are safer than cigarettes. Um, it, it'll help you kind of wean yourself off the worst tobacco and cigarette addiction. And I believe that was kind of part of their their play with with marketing these as well. But I, I want to bring TikTok back into this actually because um, – I feel like TikTok has sort of taken a life of its own in marketing these products to kids um, without Juul or Elf Bars or anything even trying to market them. Because you'll, if you search Elf Bar and TikTok, you'll just see so many viral videos with like millions and millions of views and likes of kids trying different Elf Bars and being like, oh, I got this new flavor. I really want to try it. You should try it. And everyone in the comments asking where they got them or what kind of flavor is the best. And like you'll you'll see there's a whole community on TikTok um, of kids basically trying all these different e-cigarette flavors and brands and everything. So it's like the marketing is happening on TikTok even without the company necessarily 
putting ads on TikTok. Um, so I, I think that's also an interesting aspect of this. Yeah, Lesha highlights an important aspect of the marketing strategy, which even Jewel uh, acknowledged in the docuseries, some of the members of the organization that they interviewed, that it was originally word of mouth and samples, and then it was leveraging in a very highly coordinated and curated way social media influencers in major cities like New York, Los Angeles, San Francisco, and really trying to make it the cool kids are using this. So why aren't you using it? And that point is not lost in the fact that, you know, in 2016, when it really entered the mainstream, you have kids doing the jewel pod challenge and they're, you know, putting three jewel pods in their mouth at once to see how much they can bring into their lungs. And obviously that again is problematic for an adult, but when it's a 14 year old child and the whole goal, as they stipulate in the documentary for uh, big tobacco companies was to get your users as young as you can because then you have them for a lifetime. And Jewel ultimately, which had a stake taken out by Altria, the uh, former Philip Morris company, did the exact same thing in terms of saying, if we can get these consumers young enough, we will have them for life. And one thing I just want to bring up just to kind of bring a finer point to this is that in the summer of 2019, they go through a very well in the docu-series. There's a number of vaping-related illnesses that some in our audience may recall. Teenagers ending up in the hospitals with severe lung issues and, and really scary stuff. That wasn't Juul. They go through that in the documentary about it. That wasn't Juul. That was primarily kids getting black market vapes and e-cigarettes with who knows what in them and then ingesting them, and that was causing the issues. But Juul had so almost too effectively marketed itself as the lead vape that every news story involved, you know, some sort of jewel pod or the company logo or something like that. And they couldn't escape their own oversaturation. So once it became an issue and they're trying to push back and say, no, 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 ours are fine. And young people aren't using them in X, Y, and Z. No, there was no public trust to rely back on, which I think is an important thing for the marketers in our audience to understand is that you can promote your brands. You can get them in front of the public. You can have a lot of people aware of them, but when, it hits the fan, you know, you have to be ready for those repercussions. Even if you didn't do anything wrong, that people are going to point to your brand and say, nope, they're part of the problem and we don't trust them enough to fix it. That's a great point, Jack. Yeah. When you're, you know, the, the leading uh, brand in the market and anything you do, all roads lead back to your brand. Mm -hmm. um, and um, you know, just to correct something I think I said earlier, um, that I think I was speaking out of turn, that, that the FDA um, did recall Juul, but then they walked back on the recall yeah. to do another review of the product. So they haven't even really, um, you know, done uh, a good job, you know, regulating the lead um, dog in this fight. But I'm so glad, you know, maybe, maybe just to put a final point on this discussion that uh, they're someone tackled um, this as, as a docu-series because I'm sure myself, I'm not alone in a lot of parents out there in trying to, you know, educate our, our kids, our young people, we got to look out for them um, on the dangers of vapes uh, and vape related illness and, and those kinds of things. And, and, and this, as you point out, Jack goes into all that and, and the sordid underbelly uh, and what they're not telling you, you know, that Altria, as you said, made a big investment here and uh, it's a for-profit company. Okay, going to bring this one to a close. Thanks so much for joining us in this week's episode of the MMM Podcast. Be sure to listen to next week's episode when we'll be joined by AstraZeneca's Arun Krishna. That's it for this week. The MMM Podcast is produced by Bill Fitzpatrick, Gordon Failer, Lesha Bushak, and Jack O'Brien. Our theme music is by Sizzy M. Sohn. Rate, review, and follow every episode wherever you listen to podcasts. New episodes out every week. And be sure to check out our website, mmm-online.com, for the top news stories in pharma marketing.